Welcome to Pediatric Podcast Pearls. My name is Dr. Ken Spiegelman. I'm the Medical Director of Continuing Medical Education at CCMC, Connecticut Children's. As you, many of you know, Pediatric Podcast Pearls was begun last year and has been highly successful. We're starting it in a little different way in terms of I will be the interviewer to our specialists. We will make it more interactive and sort of our version of a TED Talk. And we hope you like it. We'd like, we, we would appreciate any feedback on this too. So for today's topic, assessing normal and abnormal speech and language development is a vital component of healthcare delivery for all of our families and children. According to the National Institute of Deafness and Communication Disorders, of children three to 17 years of age, one out of 12 will have a disorder related to voice, speech, language or swallowing. And the startling number is at least 11% of children ages three to six have a communication disorder that requires assessment and intervention. So it behooves all of us as providers to be as cognizant and knowledgeable of assessment tools and referring sources. And with that in mind, we are so pleased and grateful to have two specialists from our own institution here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, Virginia Van Epps is a speech pathologist and clinical manager of speech and language at Connecticut Children's, and her colleague Jody Urzua is also a speech and language pathologist, and thank both of you for joining us today. Uh, you know, we all make a lot of referrals, but we never hear from you directly. We read the reports, and we're so grateful for all the work that both of you do. Well, thank you for inviting us. Yes, we're happy to be here. Okay, so with that in mind, I think we, we have around 20 to 30 minutes. I think we could speak for two hours, but I'm gonna, we have a whole list of questions uh, and uh, topics that I would like to cover. So I'm gonna start right in. And the first one is, when should we have our child evaluated? Uh, you know, growing up with my kids, we were often told 30 years ago, don't worry about their speech and language issues. Uh, just wait and see, they'll probably outgrow it. We used to hear that a lot, we still do. So from both of you, Virginia and Jody, when as a pediatric provider, should we be worried? And what should we do to address that worry? I think from, from my perspective, I think you're gonna hear from a parent first about their concern, right? So I think that that's the first red flag. Is there is there a reason that the parent is concerned? And that in and of itself could be the reason to, to refer the child. But I think with that starting point, uh, we want to balance making sure we, we assess them as soon as possible with also understanding that there's this realm of normal development and some children are going to be a little later than others. But if there's a, if there's a nagging concern, I'd say it's, uh, it behooves us to to do the assessment and it makes sense to, to refer. Yeah, I would agree. I am, um, we see a lot of kids come in uh, and I think in general, if a parent ever has a concern, we would rather you come in and tell you you're within that realm of normal or, you know, right at the cusp or rather than you wait and see and then lose out on that good early intervention time. And as we discussed before we started this podcast, many of us will at that point, if they don't meet our criteria or if the parents are concerned, uh, make a referral to speech and language at CCMC. Uh, should they also make a referral to birth to three at the same time? 
Yeah, I think a referral to birth to three is always a good idea. Um, you know, I think people sometimes hesitate because they think that the child may not qualify for birth to three. But I think, again, um, they get a lot out of the assessment, not just the child, but the whole family. And it gives the perspective of what's going on within the home, which I think is really vital, too. So um, I would say a referral to birth to three along with a referral to us would be appropriate at that time and to consider an audiological referral too, because we want to, you know, rule out any, any issues with hearing too. Yeah. And I, and I would add a positive to that one, even though we all know that all of our children are assessed for hearing disorders at the newborn period, it without question does not rule out other hearing deficiencies that they may develop along the way. And what I have always been taught, if you suspect a developmental or speech and language disorder, you should automatically get an audiological referral. So that's really an important take home message. Uh, is it normal for a parent to be the only one to understand that child's speech and language in the first year or two of life? I think it's typical that the, the parent might be the one to understand the child best at the beginning stages, but... Um, not to be the only one to to understand the child. And I'm sure Jody probably has some thoughts on that too. I do, yeah. And I I agree. I think at a certain age, yes, it's it's definitely normal for a parent to be um the one who understands their child best. There's like some rules of thumb that we go by as therapists. Um, generally speaking, parents and family members or familiar people should really understand like 50% of what your child says at like two years old or under. Um, and then by the time a child's like four, really it should be 90 to hundred percent of what they're saying that, um, familiar people, even unfamiliar people should really, your child should be understood by everyone. In terms of the referral, do you differentiate between those children who have delayed acquisition of speech but are receptively right on target and those that aren't able to cognitively understand everything? So we would be testing them for both, their receptive and their expressive um, abilities, and we would recommend intervention if we saw difficulty with either um, and set goals related to the specific area of need that is um, noticed during the assessment. I have, I've always been taught that the first six months of life is one of the most critical ones for the development and acquisition of speech and language in terms of what that child is exposed to or what that infant is exposed to. What types of recommendations or pearls would you give to us to give to parents that they should be doing in the first six months of life in order to uh, facilitate the best acquisition of speech and language? That's a good question because I feel like, you know, sometimes when someone may suggest a referral, um, we think, oh, you know, a patient's too young for this. And, you know, obviously six months would be young to send a referral over to speech and language. Um, we get, we see obviously babies from the time that they're born for, for swallowing, but speech and language um, in the first six months is critical though, as you say, but it's really more about building the foundation for speech, you know, those pre-communicative skills. And a lot of that is about really connecting, interacting with your baby. Um, and I'm sure 
again, Jody probably has some additional things to add to that, but I think that's the crux of it. Right. I think those first six months are are for that social engagement piece. Um, we would encourage families to play with your child, read to your child, even though they might not be able to look at the book or even flip the pages with you. Hearing those words and singing to your child are all things that help that exposure. So just talking to your child, speaking to your child, just having them not sit there and especially avoiding screens is critical. Oh, that that is definitely critical. And I think, you know, people don't realize sometimes when you say, well, talk to your child and obviously they're not going to be talking back to you, but you really just need to narrate everything you're doing. So if you're doing something in the kitchen, have the baby right there with you and talk about what you're doing. You're chopping, you're pouring, you're, you know, and you stop and interact and look at the child to tell them what you're doing that this is the way you're building foundational. And have parents get off their cell phones in front of their kids right yeah, it's really important for the the baby to know that you're there to interact with them and that's the human connection as opposed to you're just over there doing something on your phone and i just sit over here in the in the corner and we see that all the time in our office you see it among friends and i'm sure it happens in early childhood development i, th- I think it's our responsibility to communicate that as mm-hmm. early as we can now many of us see bilingual children in our offices who's speak two or the parents speak two languages, one specific language at home that's not English. Uh, and in my experience, many of these kids, if you use our normal parameters of speech acquisition, you know, one or two words by a year, three to five words, 15 months, or how many words, 18 months, a lot more and two words at two years, they haven't met those, but they're bilingual and they understand what in your experience can be most helpful in the assessment of the bilingual child? So we do have bilingual therapists and we always recommend that if um, your child is exposed to, understands, or even uses uh, more than one language, that uh, our gold standard is to have a bilingual assessment. Um, However, there are lots of monolingual evaluators out there um, and we're able to get information despite not knowing that language. Um, In general, like what we tell parents is if your child is learning two different languages or three three different languages, that's great. And we don't wanna hinder that. We want children to be exposed to multiple languages um, and that won't impact their development per se. Sometimes families will say, I feel like that's the reason why, you know, my child is delayed. And that's not really what we see. It's more that if their brains are getting so much information that their mouth isn't able to keep up with it, right? They're, they're learning so much in that period that will switch between some languages and that's okay. Um, it's, if there's one language is stronger than the other, then that sometimes happens. Um, we really encourage families to continue exposing their child to their native language and English. Um, and that if they're having a hard time in both languages, that's where we might see there's an underlying language impairment. But to hear from a parent of a bilingual child that they're saying less words than their neighbor who only has one language, but they're understanding everything that doesn't bother you that much then. As long as they are acquiring more in both. Right. If they're acquiring in both, it would, it would, 
bother me more if it was happening in both languages, Okay. if there were issues in both languages. Okay, Yeah, and that's I think just to, to add to that, you know, the research shows that that there may be a, a, a little bit of a delay in the expressive skills when a child is learning two languages, but that ultimately it is to the child's benefit um, to be a, to, to have a second language. Um, and I think it's similar to the concern that parents sometimes have. when, you know, their child, you know, a monolingual child is not um, expressing themselves and has to use, um, you know, sign, baby sign, or um, has to use picture communication. And they think, well, if I give them this, that's going to be a crutch, they're going to use this, and then they're not going to develop, you know, their verbal um, skills. But we find and research, you know, supports that that is not actually the case. You want to give them the opportunity to utilize both language systems, the nonverbal and the verbal, have effective communication, positive outcomes from that effective communication, and then overall their, their communication will develop. So I think the two, you know, have, have similarities in terms of that concern and also in terms of the um, research that supports making sure that they have the maximized. I, I, interestingly, I read research that states that uh, children who learn multiple languages at an early age are much better off from a cognitive standpoint. It just increases their cognitive uh, buoyancy and flexibility. And not to say that we should recommend multiple languages, but it seems to have a positive effect from what I've read. Yeah. Uh, what can we say to our parents to encourage their children to say more words? What are some pearls that we could recommend? Well, I think that, you know, going back to what I was saying before, sometimes people feel silly, like, oh, I'm not going to talk to, I'm going to have a whole conversation with my child when they don't, they only say a single word or they have five words, I, you know, but but not being afraid to feel, you know, silly and have a conversation with your baby because that's exactly, they're absorbing all of that, even if they're not responding back to you. So all that funny baby talk, though, we used to get from our parents was actually effective. Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's helpful. Good. Good. So I'm going to personalize a little bit with my next question. I was a profound stutterer growing up. My father was, my daughter has some, and so does my granddaughter. In fact, when I grew up, I couldn't say my name sometimes in classes and I didn't receive the appropriate therapy uh, that exists today. We often see stuttering uh, quite commonly between the ages of three and four. Uh, I'm very engaged and empathic to this particular problem. When is it normal? When is it not normal? And what type of interventions are available when it's not normal? That's So a great. there is, <laughs> go ahead, Jody, you, you start. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's a great question. Um, and there is something called the developmental stutter, and that can occur with language and vocabulary acquisition. Um, and really, kind of, I think I said it before, it, it really has to do with our brains are learning so much language and vocabulary, and our speech mechanism isn't. keeping up with it. And that's when we see children have that developmental disfluency. Um, usually between the ages of three and, and five, that happens. Um, but to your point, if there is a family history of disfluency, or it's going beyond that, oh, it's not happening just like when my child 
is learning more information or it's, it's only happening for a few weeks or a few months at a time and then it goes away. If it's pretty persistent, we always would encourage families to come for an evaluation. Um, or How often know, do you see a family history of it? Um, you know, I do have to say fluency is one of those things that it comes in waves. Sometimes we don't see um, patients with stuttering as a concern for evaluations for a little while. And then I get a bunch of them <laughs> come to come through to the office. Um, but out of all of those, I would say if I had maybe like 50% of them would be family history is when we get a so, true evaluation. And so I think the percentage increases when we see old, when we see the older children, older children. Fluency. so school age, um, children, probably right. more like 80% of those might um, have a family history. So when we see someone who may have that developmental disfluency at age three, we should be taking a family history then. And if yes. there is one, maybe get a little bit more concerned in terms of assessment and recommendation. What do you recommend to a parent who has a child who stutters? Not to worry. <laughs> and to not put pressure on their child. Um, the most important thing a parent could do is to stay calm, um, let their child know it's okay that they stutter, um, taking deep breaths and modeling slow rate of speech is really helpful because going back to what Ginny had said before with just exposing children to language and talking to yourself, if we use those strategies that we teach children in speech therapy, such as slow rate, um, you know, modulated breathing and sticking to a rhythm to help decrease disfluencies. When we use them as parents or providers, it gives another model to our patients and, and children who have a stutter. Do children who stutter often qualify for a 504 or an IEP PPT? That's a tricky one because, um, and depending on the school district too, but a lot of times there's an issue of whether or not it's judged to be affecting their education. And if it's not judged to be affecting their education, they may not get that service. Within. So that's a slippery slope. And you're right. It depends on the school system and on the advocacy that that patient wishes to exist or exert, I should say. Yes. And I think, you know, in addition to our direct services that we offer, we also do um, help parents get connected with the um, the advocacy groups that can help them with that process through our Center for Care Coordination as well. Common question we get that I think you often have to answer is what is the cause of the child's speech and language delays? Obviously, there are some medical issues, prematurity, trauma. How often, how much do you dwell into that? And is there any room for a genetics? So obviously, you know, there can be many different causes. Yes. And then there's obviously situations where we're not going to be able to pinpoint what the cause is. Um, I think that, you know, the only time we might recommend back to the referring physician that they go to genetics is if there seems to be something within taking the family history or something that we might notice about the child um, that we think would, you know, indicate the need for a genetics referral, I would have to say probably most of the time um, when we've met the child, if it's if a genetics referral was needed, it's probably been 
done. I don't think it's often that we are in the position to recommend genetics. I think more typically there's other specialties that we may be the one, the first ones to say, you know, I think the child needs to go here, but not necessarily genetics. Okay, super. Uh, one of the major screening tools that all pediatric practices that I know of you utilize is the MCHAT right now. The MCHAT revised at 18 months and most likely at two years, which is a screening tool for autism spectrum disorder, in my own opinion, not the best screening tool, uh, but because we haven't come up with a better one, but a lot of aspects of speech and language are embedded in that. Uh, it takes around a good year to get a questionable aut uh, autism evaluation into our child development uh, clinics because are just not enough child development behavioral pediatric specialists. I've been told that if you can't get them in, have them see the speech pathologist as the initial evaluator. Could you respond to that? Um, well, I'm sure as you're aware, we are as speech pathologists certainly have an expertise in the communication disorders, you know, that are involved with autism, but we don't within our scope of practice, we don't diagnose autism. Um, that being said, we certainly can look at the speech and language features and then, you know, make recommendations and have a family um, get started on what may be needed for intervention um, while they're waiting for their um, official diagnosis. Um, in terms of the, the um, assessment tool, the MCHAT, I think one of the things for, for pediatricians to consider is whether or not the CARS would be something that would be reasonable to do. I mean, that is what one of the tools that developmental pediatricians are using, but it is one that's brief and manageable. And I think maybe a little bit more helpful than the MCHAT that could be, could have some potential to be utilized in a primary practice and then may help facilitate the patient um, getting their diagnosis through development. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll make sure we'll put that uh, evaluation form on our CCMC website after this podcast as well. So do you routinely see many children diagnosed on the spectrum for speech and language? Yes. I'm going to hand that one to Jody, but the, but it's a resounding yes. And I'm going to let her yes. expand on that a little bit. Yes, we do. And, and often just to your point, we are the first people to see them because mm -hmm. of long wait lists. Um, really because one of the big characteristics or even red flags is that my child isn't talking or, um, you know, they're talking, but they're not making much sense. And so we see children for evaluations quite frequently who may have an autism diagnosis already from birth to three or from their pediatrician, but haven't gotten that um, medical stamp of, yes, I, we have a medical diagnosis of autism um, or we're highly suspicious of it. And their pediatrician wants to see if we also agree that they're checking off boxes from a developmental standpoint. Thank you. Uh, I know time is starting to run a little short, so I'm going to run through these questions. We could spend another hour. <laughs> or, um, are there any specific resources or apps that you would recommend for pediatricians to recommend to their parents, learning or educational apps on speech and language? Uh, well, I don't typically recommend specific apps or like online games to families. Um, to work on speech and language, really 
talking to your child, playing with your child, reading with your child are all the best possible activities that you could do to promote speech and language because children learn best with face-to-face -face interactions and that social engagement. Um, sometimes there are some fun online games that we might even use within speech therapy and give for home programming like uh, PBS Kids or um, speech-related or speech-specific ones, but those are usually just to help facilitate a home program. I know there are so many programs that kids are attracted to on screen time these days, uh, some probably more helpful with speech and language and some in the opposite direction. Do you have any comment about screen time in that? To try to minimize it and follow the APA guidelines. I mean, that's what we talk about all the time. So not, no screen time under two and keeping it under two hours, you know, um, when they're over that age. And to try to make it more interactive so, you know, that you're not just sitting the child down with a device and using it as a virtual babysitter, but that you are really using it with them to explore some of those um, apps where they may be learning some, you know, basic words or colors or numbers or things that are, you know, have some more of an educational basis to them. Great. And as I've, I told members of my own family, kids learn what they see, not what they're told. And if they see their parents on their screens all the time, despite what they're told, they will be on their screens all the time. So I think mm -hmm. that's a very important point to make. Last question, if, and I've had a number of kids for various reasons use sign language or being taught sign language in the first two years of life, how much does that detract or augment the acquisition of speech and language? Yeah, and I think we kind of talked about that a little bit before, and I, you know, what research shows is it really does help the child because as Jody pointed out, you know, sometimes the receptive, we know that receptive skills are always going to emerge before expressive. And so we, a child understands this, but doesn't really have the mechanism yet to, to speak back, but they can do a sign back, which is how they really get that first ability to say, oh, like, oh, I'm doing this and you're interacting with me. And, you know, it becomes a pattern of communication. So, Really, it's, it helps to enable them having a positive communicative interaction before they're able to speak. I had one child years ago that acquired such great sign language that it negated the development of speech, audible speech. Have you ever seen that? No, um, honestly, you know, again, I think that would be an anomaly because. Um, so that would be an outlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Usually and it, and it, it may very well be the fact that that child was not going to have developed verbal speech for one reason or another on a normal, you know, timeline. There may have been reasons. I don't think it would have been the fact that they used sign that prevented them. I think there probably were some other underlying reasons would well, be my thank guess. You. You know what? Our time is running short right now. I know for sure I could keep on questioning and asking my experts for another hour or two, but this has been so helpful, Jody and Virginia, to be on with us today. Uh, we're going to leave some resources that you will leave for us on the CCMC site. Do you have any parting statements to all of us? Jody? Yeah, thank you for having us. And um, I guess the take home today is exposure is key. So <laughs> talk to yeah. children, read to children, sing to them. <laughs> And I just want to thank both of you and your department for all the wonderful services that you have provided for us over the years.
uh, we can't welcome. say enough. You're welcome. Thank you for having us today. And we're always here for, for your referrals. Yeah. Thank you. Our next podcast in October will be by Dr. Corey Baker on milk protein allergy and reflux in children. Uh, we hope to have you there in another month. And please get back to us uh, with any future topics or any comments on podcasts in general. Everyone have a great month and thank you so much.